When I first came into contact with Buddhism, which was probably in college, one of the first things that I noticed about it was that it had a very clear way of describing its view. So in a comparative religion class that I took, the professor did a a quick review of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. And part of my reaction to that was, wow, that's kind of like a very well-organized way to present your views. It was almost as if someone had uh, done an abstract of an academic lecture complete with one, two, three, four, and then sub-points on each of these things. So there's clearly a very analytical mind at work with that. But one of the other things I <clears throat> also noticed was that there was an emphasis on suffering. If you look at the very beginning of the system of explanation, the first noble truth, you realize that the Buddha starts by describing suffering as being a truth, a reality for human beings. And then he goes into his method of analyzing how it's caused and how that kind of suffering that's referred to in the first noble truth can be deconstructed can be overcome, at least the discretionary parts of it. And he describes how to do that in the uh, remaining Noble Truths and in the Eightfold Path itself. But I was very struck by this suffering piece right there at the beginning. So everybody's mind is different. We know that. But for a mind like mine... I found that rather refreshing, actually. Because this was something that I had noticed for myself (laughs) by this point in my life. I had noticed that this seemed to be a true thing. And it had created many, many questions for me about uh, the religion that I inherited as a child and its... its, uh, pertinence and its um, realism in addressing the human condition. And I had basically decided that it didn't. <laughs> so that, that had to be let go of. But with the Buddhist path, I had a real appreciation that it wasn't trying to sell you a kind of pastel version of reality. And in, in fact... It was rather rather radical in that its starting point was going directly into uh, a description of the main problem and starting from there. So there's a whole way in which I could see that, okay, nothing is being denied here. It's starting with what seems to be true. So old age, sickness and death, sorrow, lamentation and grief getting what you don't want, not getting what you do want, losing what you have. This was a rather uh, complete and detailed review of things that we ordinarily want to skip and turn away from. And there was a lot of courage, I thought, in that truthfulness and a lot of confidence too. So this willingness to turn and actually face it all in a certain way was a first sign to me that there might be something reliable here. And the confidence that was present there and being willing to meet things head on was also encouraging. Encouraging to take on a direct confrontation with things. And embedded in this, of course, this description is a view that somewhere, some way, within the capacity of human beings, there was a way to come to terms with reality and be okay. And in fact, perhaps even to flourish. 
So given that there was no need for a blind kind of trust or a belief in things that I couldn't see, hear, taste, smell, touch, or cognize for myself, I thought, okay, this says I can understand directly and through guided uh, self-effort how suffering is created and how it can be released. And the truth claim, of course, was that the Buddha had done this for himself and had explained in this system how others could do it and that other people had done it too and that uh, maybe, maybe it would be possible by following this map to do it myself. So this is very interesting to me this, how this all begins with suffering and a description of suffering and how suffering is created and how it comes about. But, you know, given this rather confrontational start to the Buddhist path, the logical question that can arise might be, well, where's the happy stuff? (laughs) Right? I mean, because there are many other systems that that kind of rely on, you know, promises of... uh, bliss or heaven or things like that um, as part of their system. This one seemed to start with the difficult things. Uh, And so the the question, well, where is the happiness? How does the happiness come from? If the first noble truth is the truth of dukkha, and then there's this practice path that brings us directly into um, confrontation with conditioned reality, how can how can it be the case that this is a path of happiness, which the Buddha says it is? He says the Dharma is good is good in the beginning, it's good in the middle, it's good in the in the end. And the Buddha himself was called uh, the happy one, and his disciples were uh, monastic disciples were known by. Uh, some other aesthetics as being um, recognizable for their happiness, their joy, their um, glowing faces, even though they were living an aesthetic kind of life. So how can it be true that we can be happy with this path? How does the ha- how does happiness arise, and what kind of happiness is being talked about as part of the path. So first it's reasonable to want to be happy. The first noble truth, the truth of suffering, is seen as a problem. It's not seen as a (laughs) a goal. (laughs) So sometimes people can get a little confused about that, you know, kind of get into the uh, a negative formulation, oh it's all suffering, it's all suffering. Well, it's all conditioned. So in that sense, you could say it partakes of impermanence and a lack of stability, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we have to suffer in relationship to conditioned experience. So the Buddha talks about his path as leading to a kind of happiness that's beyond conditioned conditions. But there are some complexities due to the nature of conditioned reality and how we tend to relate to it. So now I I need to tell you why you cannot go directly to happiness. You want to know why you can't? If this is a path going towards happiness, why you can't directly go there? So if you remember some of the, the other teachings of the Four Noble Truths, you will recall that suffering, better known as dukkha, is caused by craving, which is itself rooted in ignorance. So if this ignorance is not addressed, the craving will remain and thus there will be suffering. So the method has to directly address the ignorance that's at the root of the whole thing. 
So you could say, in a way, the whole practice system is oriented to clean, clearing up and cleaning up the deluded craving, which is the cause of not happy. So when dukkha or suffering is met, seen and understood as a byproduct of craving, that is the condition for wisdom to arise. And it's the Buddhist teaching that it's wisdom that actually uproots ignorance, that allows the mind to let go of its wrong view and kind of distorted relationship with its experiences at the six sense doors. So it's wisdom that ends discretionary human suffering. So therefore the whole path is designed to cultivate wisdom. But it doesn't cultivate wisdom just of a head variety. So you can't think yourself to awakening. So when I had my first uh, experience with Buddhism in the comparative religion class, there were things about it that made sense, things that I saw were useful and valuable. And then there was this whole other level where it, it didn't make sense because it seemed like it was mostly kind of up in the head, which of course is how most professors who are not practitioners would present something like this, right? because they didn't know it from the inside. They didn't know it from the lived experience and probably hadn't had the transformative experiences that are part of the practice path. So the explanation was dry and head. But the kind of wisdom that the Buddha is talking about includes cultivation of the heart qualities as well. So this, this quality of m- this uh, term mind in Buddhism actually is more accurately translated from the Pali as heart mind or mind heart, a unification of the, uh, the intellectual capacities of, of the mind, but also the the emotions, the intentions, those dimensions of our being. And the wisdom is not even just the heart-mind. There's also wisdom being cultivated in relationship to the senses, the body. So the full range of and the full expression of human direct experience is engaged in this process of practice in the Buddha's path. And this wisdom arises in relationship to what can be directly known. Again, it rests on a kind of experiential learning, a transformation of our understanding of what we experience and what it means and what it doesn't mean. So Our first task then is to come into close connection with our immediate experience and learn how to sustain that close, wise connection with immediate experience. Because this immediate, real-time experience is the field of learning in this practice path. So, you know, first thing about getting close in, is related to the task of the establishment of mindfulness. Of coming to understand what mindfulness is in its immediate, receptive, interested, kind manifestation. So learning what that kind of uh, awareness or attention is. So establishing mindfulness and getting close to the stream of experience and learning to rest awareness right there at the mouth of the arising stream of new manifestation. And then investigation there with what's being known. Learning how to touch and receive and know what's presently arising 
as it is, letting go of concepts and the smoke cloud of papancha, that stream of associative thinking that moves away from concrete reality into speculation. So this is all, all talking about learning to get in touch with immediate, unmediated reality and staying there and letting the view, letting this direct experience, not from ideas in our heads about what should be or was or will be or might be or might mean or any of it, not taking advice from that channel, but instead resting and knowing right there at the mouth of the spring, right where things come into being. And not picking and choosing what's known, letting what is manifesting manifest and being there for it. So this is all about the first task, the establishment of mindfulness. So when mindfulness is applied... there starts to develop discernment about causation. What leads where? Right? So this is an early uh, way that wisdom starts to manifest itself. So with the establishment of mindfulness, you could say that the system, the, the body-mind-heart system, I sometimes use that term to refer to the full package, of our experience, the system begins to notice some important things. And this is a byproduct of this kind of direct seeing within the context of the Eightfold Path. So if you're going to say, well, what's being noticed there? There develops a kind of uh, clarity about the context and the type of effort needed to be present. So. It's a major insight when one starts to realize how much one struggles to figure out what's going on so we can control it. Does anybody notice this in your practice, that the mind has this tendency to want to control what's happening? So... We want to know what's going on so we can make it okay in an immediate sense by making it controllable. So we, we make a lot of effort, we spin, we get desperate, we redouble our efforts and we still can't get a grip. So a lot of meditation practice is actually over-efforting followed by aversion when <laughs> control is not secured. Does this sound familiar to anybody? It's not like there is an effort. It's just the way that the line that the effort is being, uh, along which effort is being made, isn't yet at the right angle to the experience. But every once in a while, there's a kind of clear and immediate connection with what's going on. And with practice, the system starts to learn the what present tense mindfulness is like. And it starts to recognize over and under efforting. Right? It starts to recognize, okay, now, okay, now I'm fighting, now I'm fighting with it. Now I'm fighting with it. The periods in which you get lost in that tend to get shorter over time. So another thing that the mind starts to notice is the complexification tendency, which is present. So a challenging thing about learning from direct experience in the way I've described it, this simple, sensory, immediate, receptive kind of direct knowing is that immediate experience is often obscured by and enveloped by many clouds of theory, speculation, memory, extrapolation, preference, associations, book learning, stories, self-view, and other fog. Is this not true? So learning to recognize when this is going on 
and redirecting awareness away from the fog of unknowing to something that's direct and immediate requires a good deal of commitment because that's where we are most of the time, right? We're up in the sky castle. We're kind of lost up there in all that stuff. So it takes patience and resolve and commitment. And then there's the, the, the step of starting to learn when we are doing the sky castling to recognize, okay, this is actually a phenomenon, right? This is a thing in and of itself that's happening in real time is the arising of this, this cloud of associative thought and, and all the rest of it at the mind door. That this is not always something that the mind is lost in, but sometimes it can recognize it in real time and actually hold a mindful relationship with it. A third thing the mind starts to, to learn about when mindfulness is established is conditionality. Conditionality. And now we're starting to see something that starts to sound like one of the steps in the progress of insight. So the mind over time with close attention starts to understand some things about its span of control. So it will, it'll try many, many, many times to try to make specific things happen whether that's pain to go away or pleasant states to stay or the breath to be clear or hindrances to be uh, gone or mindfulness to be strong or energy to be balanced or insights to arise. So, and uh, very often this will not work. Have you noticed this? I mean, you know what, what you want and it might even be skillful, but you just don't have the ability to manufacture it on the spot. So, and the failure of this strategy of attempting to control in this way, when the causes and conditions aren't there to support the outcome that you want, is actually an insight into dukkha. Right? It's an insight into the condition nature of arisings and into the value of letting go. And it's also the basis for the arising of an insight into the nature of not-self. Because you would have to conclude at the end or in the middle of this process that the big I is actually not in charge, right? That you are not governing your experience. So not-self is often first seen when we realize that we don't, generally speaking, control what arises moment to moment. Now, if the mind doesn't see this clearly, then it kind of lingers on in the delusion that it should be able to control and that there is a big eye in control, it's just screwed up. The big eye is a bad eye, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> it's still, it's still in our, our mental view is, it's, yeah, we're in charge, we're just incompetent. <laughs> right? But the real insight is, we're not in charge. We're not in charge. So a, a next thing to be, to be seen in practice is about the lawfulness of things. So this system, this body-mind system that we are, although it's disappointed about the lack of control that we have um, in the immediate sense, starts to understand that things don't just happen randomly either. <laughs> right? So we don't control what's happening uh, very often, but it's not happening totally chaotically. It's not totally random either. So with this comes the realization that uh, the kind of attention that we offer to experiences determines, for instance, whether hindrances increase or decrease. So even though we don't control what arises, we can learn to be close enough to what is arising 
that we can bring a kind of harmonious attention to it and move into wise relationship to it. So it's all about learning skill in attention to what is being known, what is being recognized. So the more the mind moves into attending to what's present, the less bandwidth there is to grump about what it is or cling to it or try to do something with it other than know it, right? Because the energies are going into presence and receptivity. So finding harmony with it means not suffering by resisting what's happening, having wise intention and respect to it, meaning renunciation, compassion, goodwill, and being in wise relationship to it, sustaining uh, a mindful kind of presence with what's being known. So as we continue on, the mind starts to learn to be able to discern what, is, what states are suffering ones and what are not. Okay, this right here for us human beings is an area of big confusion. Because I, we tend to characterize states as being negative if they're unpleasant and positive if they're pleasant, right? And the idea of skillful and unskillful as being the analytical uh, screen or view that we're taking in respect to things is actually a big human advancement because we're biologically set up to go for what's pleasant. Right? This is like an inborn uh, thing for us. So to begin to be able to see Vedana, which is this uh, quality of pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality, and training the mind to sustain presence with experience, regard the same kind of presence with experience, with experience, regardless of what the Vedna is, is a really key and transformative kind of thing because it allows us as human beings to open up the dimension of choice so that we can learn how to go upstream as needed from our biological and psychological inclinations. Because otherwise we're just pushed around by our conditioning towards uh, securing pleasant and avoiding unpleasant. So when we start seeing Vedana and how it can condition grasping and that grasping is suffering, it also starts to be able to recognize the other things that are unwholesome to follow and to recognize the things that are wholesome and how wise and attention encourages those to flourish. So unless we learn how to practice with all of these Vedanas, the mind will not become equanimous. And if the mind does not become equanimous, then the mind will not be able to clearly perceive or clearly see its experience because it's going to be editing it or attempting to edit it and using an incredible amount of its bandwidth to do that. So mindfulness will not become purified, will not come to the full strength that's possible for mindfulness. So the ability to attend to all, all three Vedanas is the foundation for equanimity which further supports clarity of mind. And more mindfulness means more clear seeing which means more letting go of grasping and clinging and more peace and more equanimity and more liberative 
wisdom. So that's the virtuous cycle. So you can see this mindfulness is really a linchpin of the whole system. Because if the mind lacks the capacity to see in a clear and wise way its immediate experience, whether it's, you want to use the sixth sense door way of explaining the kinds of things we can know, or whether you want to talk about um, some of the other, other ways that things are, are described. Perception, for instance. When the mind can't see its own workings, it can't cultivate wisdom. But when the mind starts to be able to see its own workings in an undistorted way, it starts to see how it gets in trouble and how it suffers unnecessarily. And it starts to understand a different way of relating to its own uh, own arisings, its own knowings, that doesn't have this characteristic of suffering that's born from delusion, that is much freer, much happier. But mindfulness is the key to all of this. So, and that, that is really one of the distinctive features of the Buddha's path. But there are a number of other things besides the cultivation of mindfulness that directly supports happiness. So, let's consider some of the other things that can lead to happiness. So, one thing that's I've really noticed is to me at least, there's real value in getting a big picture, right? Getting the big picture of what's going on. So for, uh, and, and having the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path there as explicit and very well-developed teachings is a huge gift. And for a human being to feel like they have access to a path to end suffering and guidance in how to walk that path can be a source of great happiness because how many people can say that? That they have access to that in a way that doesn't require them to put on blinders or to operate on uh, uh, the word of somebody else or uh, on blind faith in things that cannot be directly known. So this is a, another comfort, at least for me, that there's no subordination of direct knowing to another's representation that's required in order to do this practice, that it's subject to being tested, each one of us in our own laboratory. So it's doable, walkable, and testable. So I can remember um, having a Dharma friend and we were having a conversation about Dharma stuff. And I asked her, well, what, what's the difference now for you, you know, having walked, been on this path for a while? And she said, well, one of the biggest things for me is now I have tools. I have tools. You know, some of them I'm not so good at, some of them I'm just trying to figure out, but I've got, I've got tools, right? I've got a map, I've got tools. And that's huge. So another thing that we have available to us through practice is the attitudinal trainings. And you know that training in renunciation, for instance, as countercultural as this is, is really the key to letting go of an addictive relationship to what's pleasant which is a different thing, by the way, from finding pleasantness to be a problem, because it's not. So this is not a stamp out pleasantness project. Pleasantness is not the problem. (laughs) How the mind creates suffering out of its grasping for pleasantness is the problem. But 
with trainings in renunciation and wisdom, the mind starts to understand how it can experience pleasantness without becoming entrapped and addicted to it in unskillful ways. So with this, we're able to set a wise course and direction for our lives and actions without being governed by Vedana, without being pushed around it by it. So we can go against our organic tendencies when that's necessary and wise. And thus avoid the kind of suffering that can come from unskillful enmeshment with different kinds of Vedana. With the attitudinal trainings, we also develop a mind that's inclined towards and committed to non-harming which allows us to be trusted and trustworthy. So we can become, through these trainings, a a person who's a unifier and an inclusive kind of person who brings harmony into, into groups and can support reconciliation among people. So one can become the kind of being that can interject something new into situations that are otherwise governed by fight, flight, and freeze reactivity. Right? To be a different, a different kind of participant in our family, in our group, in our culture. And in addition, this cultivation of metta, uh, goodwill, and karuna, compassion, ends the internal war that we often have, where our system turns against itself in a kind of reaction to its own distress. Have you ever had the experience of that, of feeling not well, or experiencing pain, or having some kind of life disappointment, or frustration or something and and have the mind like turn around and kind of beat yourself up because you're having a hard time you know give you a little dope slap like that's going to help you did it again you're you're this you're that you're hopeless you're bad you're inferior you're this you're that Okay, that is not the meta voice. (laughs) That is not the compassion voice. That is not the wisdom voice. But somehow, you know, that's a conditioned voice at some at some point, probably some point very young. uh, The system came up with because it thought it would be helpful, (laughs) help keep us on our toes or or something, right? But it has uh, far outlived whatever usefulness that we may have thought it to have. So now, with the cultivation of um, uh, uh, goodwill and compassion and non-harming, the unification of mind is possible where the system responds to its inner knowing of difficulty and pain with kindness and self-support and a kind of foundational loyalty. So to imagine the possibility or the happiness of having a mind that's reliably kind. Right? This is part of the, the gifts of the, the practice path and the happiness of the practice path. It's tough enough already. Okay, baby cakes. Oh, that was a bad one. It's okay. Yeah. That's okay. I think it's time for a nap now. What do you think? Yeah, I think so. It's time. <laughs> wise thought, wise, wise intention. Another source of happiness in practice is the cultivation of sila. So practicing the kind of basic morality that is present with the precepts and with uh, uh, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, steps of the Eightfold Path 
can cause what's called the bliss of blamelessness to arise in the mind. So, and the Buddha said that this was actually one of his deepest happinesses, that he would reflect that of all the beings in the world, in this other world, he recognized that he had no inclination to harm any of them and that none of them had anything to fear from him. Would send him into the experience of the deepest kind of happiness. You know, to know that for yourself, regardless of what what other people do, that you yourself are committed to a particular uh, direction of moral development towards non-harming and that let the rest of them do as they might but you ain't going going down that way. That can cause self-respect to arise, right? And that kind of self-respect leads to a kind of confidence, sometimes to a kind of uh, faith, sadha. Because you, there's an integrity to it. A unity of mind. And this manifestation of trustworthy morality also gains the trust of other people. Because there's nothing hidden about it. Right? There's no hidden agenda. There's not so much of a shadow side that's going to come out and surprise you and everybody else because the mind has been penetrated. You know, its unconscious material has become more conscious. Its uh, tendencies towards greed, hatred, and delusion are more visible to it and are less compulsively acted out. So you can see that sila helps to support enduring and healthy relationships and keeps us from doing things that lead to harm to ourselves and others and all the downstream consequences that can come from a serious lapse. (laughs) And we've probably all had the experience of, you know, doing stuff that retrospectively we thought, oh, bad one, really bad one. I wish I could undo that, or I wish I could take that back, or, man, what was I thinking? That was, like, screwed up. But the more sila there is, the less there is of that kind of later regret and remorse. So... Well-established sila supports calm and freedom from the turmoil of remorse. So another gift of the practice, in addition to mindfulness and the uh, attitudinal trainings and sila, is um, other kinds of mental and emotional development that are part of the practice of meditation and other path aspects. So I said earlier, in Buddhism, uh, mindfulness is kind of the lead horse in uh, Vipassana meditation. But that's the opening energy, right? That's just the opening energy. So also being developed are the other seven factors of awakening investigation, uh, courageous energy, um, PT, which is rapture, bliss, interest, calm or tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. So this is the unfolding of the wisdom mind which can penetrate reality and find liberation. These seven factors uh, working together in a uh, strengthening and balanced way. And in the Brahma Vihara practices, we develop the skillful and uplifting qualities of loving kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, 
equanimity and get concentration as a bonus. Concentration, wise concentration coming out of the practice of these particular states. And you can see as these qualities start to open, then faith is reinforced and the paramis, the perfections of heart, also start to ripen. So the paramis are a set of mental qualities. I say uh, heart-mind qualities that together describe the inner landscape when fully developed of the mind of an awakened being. So if you want to know what the mind of a Buddha is like or what the mind of uh, an awakened one is like, you would say, paramis, paramis. So these qualities are also being developed and being trained by anybody who's walking the Eightfold Path. And the ripening of these qualities of mind actually bring about awakening. So these are, and different schools of Buddhism have them in different numbers, they have some somewhat different lists, but in our tradition they are generosity, dana, the first, uh, ethical conduct, or sila, renunciation, wisdom, diligent effort, patience, truthfulness, resolve, loving kindness, and equanimity. So you'll notice from that list, it's overlap with some of the other things I've been talking about earlier, right? Familiar refrain, Ethical conduct, renunciation, wisdom, effort, loving kindness, equanimity. Those have been part of the previous things that have been referenced. So a heart-mind that's filled with those kinds of qualities is pretty happy, right? And just to heighten this insight for you, I'm going to ask you to do an exercise. So bring your attention to your body briefly now. So see if you can feel the body. Because I'm going to read you a list of the opposites and see how these feel. <laughs> well, and to give you an idea about what, it's, what it feels like when the, the opposites to the paramis are present. Uh, Stinginess, greed, uh, immorality, or ethical carelessness, greed, addiction, delusion, lack of courage, lazy, impatient, demanding, lack of integrity, weak-willed, hatred, reactivity. That'd be a nice sitting, huh? <laughs> you're, you're doing your noting and <laughs> that's what it's like. Oh, that, that'd be one where it'd be probably time to go take a cup of tea. But you can see the juxtaposition there, right? Compared to generosity, ethical conduct, renunciation or letting go, wisdom, Diligent effort, patience, truthfulness, resolve, loving kindness, and equanimity. So you can see the, the first of these that was referenced, generosity, is, some, is sometimes described by the, the Buddha when he's describing the progression of his path as the first of the trainings, training in generosity as being the first thing. Because it's um, asking the mind to practice letting go 
right at the beginning, at least a little bit. Right? A little bit of renunciation of this, the tendency of the mind towards attachment and greed right at the beginning of the practice path. Just to get it headed a little bit upstream. <laughs> so with the cultivation of generosity, the mind starts to let go of what it doesn't need which starts to loosen the craving in the mind. And when giving is directed to the support of the well-being of others, then joy can open at this expression of (coughs) metta and compassion and connection, which further supports self-respect. So these qualities of generosity, appreciation, empathetic joy and gratitude are closely related qualities of mind and in particular really kind of brighten the mind and beautify it, uplift it and join us to others and to all of life with the counteracting of the sense of isolation, of depression, of envy and jealousy and of not enoughness. So that's pretty potent medicine. So if you've ever had a strong experience, for instance, of deep gratitude, it's a really happy state, isn't it? I mean, it feels full, it feels connected, it feels happy. There's a kind of overflowingness there, a sense of safety. A recognition that, oh yeah, I've been given to also. Yeah, I get stuff. (laughs) Instead of our more common experience of thinking, whatever we have isn't enough. Or we're not enough. Or we're not connected, or we're alone, or we're separate, or... So with the practice path, there's also happiness that arises uh, on a relative level, which is getting on the upside of conditioned arisings. So I said everything's conditioned, that's, and thus everything is impermanent, which can be a source of the arising of dukkha in relationship to not wanting that to be the case and clinging. But there is an upside of conditioned arising or the conditionality of things. So setting in motion the causes and conditions for relative happiness, one thing that's true when we are present in a mindful kind of way and the mind is balanced and open is that there's actually an enhancement of sense pleasure There's a story about Joshua Bell, who's a very well-known classical violinist, who did this experiment of going down into the subways of New York and kind of setting up shop and playing down there. And one interesting outcome of the whole thing was that almost everybody just like walked on by, didn't give them like a second look, didn't stop, didn't... Because they weren't there, right? They weren't there for the experience. They weren't, they weren't hearing what he was playing. They were, they were absent and involved with some uh, preoccupation. So the ability to be present to, for, for beauty, um, and you've had probably had some experiences like this on retreat, at least brief ones, where, for instance, you've gone to the, the lunch table and gotten your food and sat down and started eating and going, wow. Or taking your shower at night 
you know, stepping into the shower. Whoa, <laughs> there's a lot going on here. Just in the shower. Right? Being present on that sensory kind of level for, for things that are pleasant. You also have the experience of pleasantness in related to meditative experiences, right? You ever had the, the experience for sitting? For instance, I can remember when I was here for a, a long time once as a retreatant. I used to sit over there, like maybe at around the third chair there. And um, every Friday night, there would be, like, late afternoon, actually, there would be just the most subtle sound of a train. And where the train goes around here is probably at least 10 miles away. But there must be something about being on top of the hill and just how sound carries, if you had good hearing. And I would hear, like, the sound of this train and maybe just like a very faint, I mean, it was very faint, it was a very faint whistle. But there was something very piercing and very poignant about it. That was, to me, quite beautiful, just in that sensory experience. Right, some resonance of, I don't know, returning home or something. Some of the relative happiness that that arises as part of the practice path longer term too is the reduction of unwholesome states overall. So fewer arisings and when they arise they're, they're weaker. Right? You still have your patterns, you still have your tendencies, they still come up but they just don't quite stick the way they used to, right? And when the mind starts to recognize it, oh yeah, this is what my mind does. Sometimes it does this, oh yeah, it does this. Okay, then it lapses into self-pity and, you know, then it rolls around self-pity for a while and, okay, let's see. It's 8.10, I think, okay, eh, by 9, it'll be... (laughs) It'll be better. You know, in a certain kind of way, you don't take your stuff as seriously anymore, right? And so you're able to attend to it with less reaction and more uh, more kindness, more wisdom. And it moves through quicker. Yeah. So sometimes I'll say as well, the difference between now and when I started practice is that Uh, things that used to last for months will last for days and things that would last for days (laughs) will last for minutes and things that used to last for minutes well, probably doesn't happen anymore. So the palette of experience changes. And there's a reduction of suffering in relationship to suffering so <clears throat> the system gets better, better at seeing suffering as suffering when it's happening. But it doesn't cling to it and it's not identified with it so much. And so the second arrow remains sheathed. So there's more skill in relating to the arising of this kind of thing. So, for instance, more skill in recognizing and applying antidotes to hindrances. So we talk about hindrances in terms, mostly here in terms of states that arise in meditation that can get in the way of the practice. But it doesn't just happen in meditation, right? I mean, these are suffering states that arise in the rest of our life as too. So we get better at recognizing when it's there, you know, recognizing when anger is there. You know, I, I, in the last talk I, I talked about re- recognizing this thought that came into my mind of wanting to crush a particular media figure <laughs> uh, who's uh, the subject of a lawsuit 
because I had a strong feeling of moral disapproval. And recognizing that thought of, oh, okay, this is definitely ill will, before the mind could even get reactive to it, there was the arising of the words of the Metta Sutta. Right there, right? Like, close, recognize, quickly recognize the arising of some of these unwholesome states. And the spontaneous remedy being more available. But because you're taking it less personally, the mind is also getting less freaked out. Right? So the mind isn't going, Oh my God, I'm a Dharma teacher. Can you believe that thought I just had? What a horrible thing. If I have that kind of thought, I shouldn't be a Dharma teacher. Or I shouldn't be a monastic if I have this state or whatever it is, right? It's like that level is just not there anymore. It's like, oh, this is what's happening. Okay. Unskillful. Next. <laughs> so with this, there, there's a kind of unbinding of karmic knots. These kind of conditioned cycles of thought and emotion and body sensations and hindrances where the the mind habitually gets lost. So there's an increase in wholesome states, states of generosity, loving kindness, wisdom, increase in the strength of these states in the mind stream. So with all of this, these are all signs that the system, as I'm saying, this unification of body, mind, emotion, this totality of uh, our unique totality of uh, conditioned arisings is actually becoming unified and it doesn't fight with itself anymore. Right? It sees what's happening metaphorically speaking, it's present to what's happening, but it's not fighting with things anymore. The energies are going into this this mirror-like recognition of what's happening in real time. So this unification of mind is the purification of mind. Because when the system starts to see what's happening in real time in a sustained kind of way, it starts to understand what is skillful and useful in relationship to what is being known and it does it spontaneously. Spontaneously takes up a wise relationship with what's happening. So this then is a kind of relief and a kind of very deep letting go and the piece which accompanies it. So you could describe that as equanimity, which is a kind of balance of mind rooted in understanding and wisdom that denies nothing, connects with everything, is willing and able to let go and know whatever is present with balance. And, you know, this is the ground or the state from which what are called classic awakening experiences arise. So this is part of the ultimate direction of practice where the mind is released from suffering and moves beyond conditionality and touches the unconditioned. So, it's a very interesting thing, isn't it? This practice path that starts with suffering. And this very counter instinctual way in which the Buddha emphasizes investigation 
of actually connecting in a very deep, clear, wise, sustained way with the immediate experience and how the process all moves when it's framed within the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and informed by uh, wise attitudes of mind bends in the direction of self-purification, self-education, and self-liberation. So, as human beings, we're all born with the tools for progress along this particular uh, axis of development. And with the, the trainings that the Buddha offers us, we are being coached in how to deploy those resources that are an intrinsic part of us. So I'd say this uh, indeed is good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. So it's about dukkha, but it's not all about dukkha. It's about the end of dukkha. That's good for now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.